All right, picture this. You're standing outside of a gigantic office building. Big old skyscraper. It's hot outside. Oh, hey kids, you should go. Kiddos, take off. You're not in the skyscraper thing, sorry. Go do your thing. Next time, next time. Thank you for reminding me of that. You're standing outside of a big skyscraper. It's really hot because you're in Houston, Texas. It's always hot. And what you're doing is you're trying to find a job. Just picture that. Remember those days? I know some of us are in the midst of that. You're trying to find a job. You just finished law school, right? So you've passed the bar. You're ready to go serve as a lawyer. You're looking for work. And nobody's hiring. You're knocking on doors. You're finding that frustration again and again. And you're frustrated and you're tired. And did I mention that it's hot? Like it's really hot. And you walk in through the doors of another law firm, the air conditioning hits you and you kind of cool down a little bit, and you talk with the receptionist and she finally finds a way for you to talk with one of the partners of this firm, a guy named Bob, and Bob shakes your hand and he seems kind, and he offers you a seat and you start to talk and talk about this job, and after a little while, Bob says to you, yeah, I think we can do something. I think we can make this work, and you're just... You're flooded, right? Like the emotions just run through. Your heart rate picks up. You're going to get a job. Like this is great. And then Bob offers you an invitation. He has one more thing he wants to say to you. Bob says, I want you to come to Bible study with me. I want you to come to Bible study with me. This scenario actually happened. This is the story of how my dad found his first job. My dad's a lawyer. He still works at this same firm, still works with Bob. But even more transformative than my dad finding a job was the invitation that Bob made to him. Come to Bible study with me. Bob's part of a Bible study called Bible Study Fellowship. Anybody familiar with BSF? Amazing, amazing ministry. Been around a really long time. And all it is, is it's a non-denominational international Bible study. You show up, you're in a small group, there's a lecture, you have homework. It's really wonderful. And my dad, before that moment had kind of been around church, he'd maybe read the Bible a little bit, but he would not say that his faith was robust or thriving. And then Bob says, I want you to come to BSF with me. Just an invitation, just want you to join me. And his life was forever changed, and my life was forever changed by that invitation. I'll talk a little more about that later. We're talking about Bible study today because it doesn't just transform the lives of young lawyers in Houston. It changes the life of anyone who touches it. And I know that, you know, at Bethany, we're a teaching church. We love to sort of emphasize the scriptures and why it's important. So I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I'm, we're talking today about Bible study to people that I think appreciate Bible study in a lot of ways. But what I want to do for all of us is move the needle a little bit. And what do I mean when I say that? What I mean is when every one of us wakes up in the morning, you have a similar dilemma to what I face. You got to make coffee. That's the first dilemma, of course. But then you have a choice. Do you look at your phone? Do you pull up the newspaper? Or, because we're kind of old-fashioned, I actually walk out of my driveway and pick up the newspaper. Or do you pick up your Bible? And I'm just saying, if we can move the needle just a little bit toward where our first instinct, those of us who follow Jesus Christ, is to pick up the Bible, that that's the first move that we make, hopefully with coffee, then that's a win. And if Bible reading isn't something you're familiar with, if you're like my dad, you know, you show up and this guy starts talking to you about Bible study and you're like, okay, I'm hoping that through our study today we can say, you know what, it actually is worthwhile 
to look at these ancient scriptures. It actually is worthwhile to see this, and not just for what I can get out of it. We've got to kind of reframe the way that we think about Bible study. So to do this, we're going to talk about why the Bible matters, why it's essential for thriving with Christ, why is it valuable to kind of move the needle in that direction, and then we're going to talk about how it changes people's lives how it literally alters the course of people's lives. And so as we do this, we're going to borrow a page from the playbook of our friends at Paradise Baptist Church, do a little call and response. You ready for this? you got to get your voices. you got to get ready to go. Here's how it goes. I'm going to say we read the Bible, and you're going to say because we need the truth. Are you ready? We read the Bible because we need the truth. One more time. We read the Bible because we need the truth. We're going to come back to that again and again. And yes, I actually do intend on showing us why the Bible is the truth. That's pretty important. If we're saying it, what do we mean when we say it? So let's look at that. We're going to do a broad overview of a chunk of the history of the people of Israel. So thousands of years ago, before Jesus arrives on the scene, Israel is an important nation. They've enjoyed the blessing of God. They've been set free from slavery. They have been sort of rebuilt as a nation to demonstrate something that nobody else gets to do. And that's to show the people of the world, hey, this is how life looks when you follow God. But of course, because people inhabited the nation of Israel, things went sideways. Things got messed up. The people of Israel, even though God had done all this amazing stuff for them, right? It was God who was responsible for bringing them into freedom. God who was responsible for giving them all the good stuff that they had. God who was responsible for everything they found a way over and over and over again, very creative ways to turn their backs on God. And that's not a criticism of Israel. That's a connection that we share because all of us find ways to do this. And one of the things that the Bible does just at the top is it reminds us of how good and merciful and wonderful God is so we don't forget that when the chips are down. So we don't forget that in our moments of crisis. So how did Israel get to this point? How did they turn abandoning God into a professional sport? What caused Israel to slip and fall is the same thing that is present in all of our lives. And that's brokenness, that's sin, whatever words you want to use for it. The book of Judges actually has an interesting summary of how Israel went off the map. This is Judges chapter 21, verse 25. End of the book of Judges, end of kind of an era in Israel's history when they weren't being led by kings, they were being led by judges. It says this, in those days... There was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody did what was right according to them. Okay, what's one of the first lessons you learn as a grown-up? You can't live that way. You can't live like what I believe and what I want to do, it's totally fine as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. No, that's nonsense. Because everybody living according to what they believe is right only leads to chaos. Because there has to be a measurement, there has to be a standard, there has to be a plumb line by which all of these actions and activities are measured. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. My way must be the best way. i got to keep doing it. It's my way. They believed the story that was being told around them by the wider culture. Case in point, one of the things that happened in the history of Israel after the judges is you had king after king after king, sorry, no queens, wasn't an egalitarian society, king after king after king, saying... Hey, I'm in charge now. Let's get stuff going in the right direction. And every king had the opportunity to say, let's clear the deck. Let's get stuff started over again, including our worship. Because the kings of Israel were responsible for the worship of the people of Israel. Well, guess what every king neglected to do? Clean up 
people's worship. Get the pagan idols out of the temple. Get the scriptures in the hands of the people. Show people a way forward that wasn't just like, well, just keep doing what you've always been doing. There's no vision for the thriving spiritual life of the people of Israel. Kings were not interested in that. At least not until King Josiah, and we'll get to him in just a moment. But I think what each of these kings confronted was something that, it was something that any of us in leadership confront time and time again, and that is this. You look at all the problems in front of you and the challenges, and you go, which one's the biggest one? Start with the hardest thing first. I've got to tackle this. I've got to do this. I've got to get this right. And when it came to worship, the kings of Israel said, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. Now, there are moments when we probably need to hear those words and kind of give ourselves some grace, but in general, when it comes to our life as people of faith, it's not that big a deal is a really slippery slope. Stuff starts to unravel really quickly when you hear, it's not that big a deal. So what's the point that I'm trying to make? The point that I'm trying to make is that our default as people is that we're falling apart. Our default is that we are falling apart. And that's sin, and that's being lost, and that's being totally bewildered by this crazy, confusing world that we're in. And we hold that intention with the reality that people are capable of amazing things. People are capable of doing incredible stuff, and yet, we are so quick to compromise. We are so quick to say, eh, it's not that big a deal. In the absence of truth, something else will fill the void. I'll say that again. In the absence of the truth, something else will fill the void. The kings of Israel knew the truth, that they were supposed to be forming the people of Israel for God's purposes, but they said, eh, well, we'll get the other stuff figured out. That's not as big of a deal to us. In the absence of truth, something else fills the void. You ever had a cavity? Cavities aren't fun, <laughs> and they're usually very expensive. What do you have to do with a cavity? You have to have it filled in. You can't just heal it up or wash it out and sort of leave it empty, then you won't have a tooth. Something has to fill the void. When we don't know the truth, the things that slip in and try to fill the void for us are incredibly problematic. Think about it in terms of my dad's situation. He's starting off in business. He's getting this law firm going. He's bringing his skills to bear. What if the conversation that he first had with Bob was about how much Bob loved to make money? And making money is important. But what if Bob didn't drive him toward the Bible? What if Bob drove him toward, you need to be here 100 hours a week? And we've all had conversations like that, haven't we? Where we say, you know what? I don't think these expectations are going to be life-giving for me. I don't think this is going to allow me to be a good servant in my family. But in the absence of truth, something else fills the void. And I'm so thankful that in my dad's conversation with Bob, the truth was there. I want you to come to Bible study. I want you to learn more about this great God. And that's why we study the Bible. We study the Bible because we need the truth. Say it with me again. We study the Bible because we need the truth. Because in the absence of truth, something else is going to sneak in there and fill the void. Now let's talk about how this gets very, very real in the life of a king named Josiah. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, we're going to read a couple of passages from 2 Kings. So I've given us a little bit of the story before the time of the kings. And what we need to know before we read this section is king after king after king has failed to help the people of Israel get in line with what God wants. And this isn't just behavior modification. This is leaders who are supposed to say to the people, look, I care about how you worship God. I care about how you use your money. I care about how you read the scriptures. Every single one of these kings had failed to do that. 
And at the beginning of 2 Kings 22, it tells us that Josiah comes from a line of kings. His dad and his granddad were both kings, and they both failed to help the people of Israel get back in touch with who they are. And so Josiah comes to power. This is the beginning of 2 Kings. I'll read 2 Kings 22.2. It says this about Josiah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the way of his father David or his ancestor David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That makes Josiah stand apart from all these other stories about all these other kings. He was one of the few that said, I want to be about serving God. I want to be about leading my people like kings are supposed to lead the people. And so Josiah sends a couple of his servants into the temple. And they're going to go look for some money, a temple offering that somehow got lost. And instead, what they find is something remarkable. Picture this. You're walking into a room. Maybe it's like your garage. Maybe it's like my garage. It's cluttered. There's stuff everywhere. It's kind of dark. You can't see anything. And in the corner, there are these dusty books, in this case, these scrolls. And these temple priests, these people who theoretically should have known every square inch of that temple but somehow didn't, walk into this room looking for something else, and they find two ancient scrolls covered in dust that nobody's picked up for years. And they bring them to the king. And the king unrolls these scrolls, and here's what he says. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, this is verse 11, he tore his clothes. That was a sign of agony. That was a sign of repentance. That was a sign of, oh my gosh, this is awful. What did he read? He had read, scholars think, some words from either the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Jeremiah. And they had been so neglected, so forgotten by God's people that they came as a surprise to the king. They said, wait, what is this stuff? And he had his advisors around him to kind of help explain it to him. And then a little bit later on in verse 13, the king says this, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, for all of Judah, the whole nation, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. The way that I would read that is, Israel didn't just need to clean up its act. Israel needed a major intervention. They needed top-to-bottom change, because there had been bloodshed, there had been wars, there had been division in the kingdom. It all needed to end so that they could be who God wanted them to be. Have you ever had someone say to you, this is not who you are? This is not who you are. That's a very rare phrase to use unless you're around, I think, a lot of people with addictions. Because in addiction, either the process or the substance so transforms you and you become so enslaved to it that there's, your whole character changes. Essentially, this is an intervention for the people of Israel. This is them hearing clearly, their leaders hearing clearly, and then them hearing clearly for the first time in generations, this is not who you are. The presumption when we hear someone say to us, this is not who you are, is that they know who we are, that they love us, that they care about our life, that they've seen us be at our very best. And so this is not meant to be so much of a scathing, burning sling and arrow. This is, no, this isn't right. The way that you're living your life, this is not how God has made it. That's why Josiah tears his clothes, and that's why at the beginning of 2 Kings 22, there's this amazing moment for the leaders of Israel and for all the people to be gathered together. Listen to this. This is 2 Kings uh, 23, excuse me. 
verses 1 through 3. Then the king directed that all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem should be gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him went all the people of Judah, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he, the king, read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The scroll isn't dusty anymore. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord, keeping his commandments, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant too. It is a transformative moment in the life of Israel. And that word covenant, that's a sacred agreement between God and people to do something that honors God, that serves God. And if you keep reading into the 23rd chapter of 2 Kings, you'll see stuff starts to change. And guess where it starts? Josiah brings change almost immediately to the worship of the people of Israel. He says, we got to get this right. we got to get rid of pagan idols. we got to straighten the ship out in terms of our worship. The very thing that the kings before him, his granddad, his dad, chose to neglect, chose to say it's not that big a deal. That's what Josiah puts up first on his plate and says, no, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. The point I'm trying to make is that reading the Bible changed an entire nation. The weight of that didn't hit me until I was going through my sermon yesterday. An entire nation can be changed when people read the Bible. That's incredible. Think about all the different ways that we as a nation have been through chaos and turmoil and just, you know, the last year, two years. It's been a tough road for us, and I'm not saying the Bible would solve all of it. But what if? What if just a really good dose of people taking the Bible seriously, going out winsomely and with grace to engage people informed by the scriptures, what if that could change our country and could change the countries around us? If it happened in the Bible, I believe it can happen today. Israel starts to get back on track. Don't get me wrong, there's a ton of conflict ahead of Israel after this. It's not like it's all sunshine and roses after Josiah's kingship. But he makes a very important practice available to us to consider. And this is what I want to offer as we think about how are we going to move the needle a little bit more toward reading the Bible, toward prioritizing that in each of our lives. What Josiah teaches us is very simple. Start small. Start small. We think he maybe had access to two of the books of the Bible, if that. One, a book of the law, Deuteronomy. Another one, a book of the prophets, Jeremiah. Start small. If Bible reading, like it was for my dad, if that is totally a new thing for you, start small. Five minutes, ten minutes. Pick a gospel. Pick Matthew or John. That would be where I start. Read through one of the Psalms. Five minutes, ten minutes a day. Start small. If you get super ambitious and you go, I'm going to read the whole Bible in the next year, like, I'll see you at numbers. Like, that's going to be a hard journey. (laughs) Start small. Give yourself the grace to just kind of take it on in bite-sized chunks. Or if you're thinking about your kids, if you're going like, how can I invite my kids into this? I feel pretty good about my own approach to reading the Bible. Start small with them. I mean, kids don't have a lot of attention span for reading huge chunks of the scriptures. But if you start small with them, if you pick up the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is one of my favorite, favorite resources, not just for kids, for families, for everybody, start small. Just read through little sections of it. Write down your questions. Consider them carefully. And what happens when we do this is, let's, let's, let's shrink it down a little bit. It's not just changing a nation. It's changing our hearts. 
And that's what we've been talking about in this sermon series, about these spiritual disciplines, about these ancient practices. It's not just about getting this action right, getting this behavior right. It's saying, my character needs to change in ways that I probably don't want it to. And the Bible is going to be the most trustworthy guide I have for that. A, a story from my life that I've shared before uh, with us is from my previous church, the congregation that I served in Colorado. Uh, we went through a season in that church where there was just a lot of conflict. There were families in conflict with each other. Our staff was in conflict with each other. It was a hard time, one of the hardest times I've ever had in ministry. And throughout that, I began to look around and realize that in the midst of all this conflict, I was holding some stuff in my heart toward other people. I had fashioned my perception of other people who'd been involved in these conflicts into seeing them as enemies, seeing them as people that were opposed to me or that didn't like me or didn't want to do this or didn't want to do whatever. And then I read Matthew 5:44, where Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I don't know why it hit me in the moment that it did. I was actually reading it as I was studying for a sermon, not on that topic. But I came back to that passage and I read it and I read it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And it shook me up. And here's why. I knew it was going to cost me something when I started to pray for my enemies, when I started to pray for people that I wasn't enjoying, that I wasn't in the privilege of good relationship with in the moment. It cost me my bitterness to pray for them because I couldn't have a bitter, bitter heart towards someone that I was choosing to pray for. It cost me giving up emotional energy just to keep pouring and pouring into those relationships when I knew in that season it wasn't going to get better. It wasn't the time for that. It cost me thinking that I was somehow innocent. It let me own the part that I had in the conflict that was happening there. I had to let go of my illusion of innocence. And it cost me that wonderful sense of victimization that we all love so much, where you think, I'm, in, I'm the one that's right here. Everyone else will figure it out someday. No. I had to let it go. And you know what I experienced? Freedom. My heart was free when I could listen to what Jesus said and love my enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And it was not easy, and it was not the change that I had on my calendar for that week. But it was what God chose to do in my life because I needed some idols to be torn down. So how about us? We read the Bible because we need the truth. Say it with me again. We read the Bible because we need the truth. I probably could have become a very bitter person through that process had I not heard the scriptures in a different way than I'd ever heard them before. And I want to offer just one caution in our discussion. Don't miss Jesus as we read the Bible. As we read the Bible, as we seek ways to grow in our faith, don't miss Jesus. What do I mean when I say that? Turn with me to John chapter 5. This is an interaction Jesus has with a religious group of people. And Jesus says this to them, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. This is verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is talking to hostile people, people who want to kill them. And he says, you're missing it. 
all this head knowledge that you have, all this Bible study that you've done, all this you know, supposed understanding of the scriptures, you don't understand. You have missed it. And what you're missing is me. What you're missing is my grace and my compassion. In the verse right before, verse 38, he says, believe the one God has sent. Don't get your theology all lined up. Don't get your gospel tracts all figured out. All those things are fine and good. Believe first in me because the scriptures are pointing to me. This is like the road to Emmaus when Jesus is walking with these two disciples. It's after his death and his resurrection. And at the end of that conversation, the scripture tells us he explains to them everything that had been told about him in all of the scriptures. He lays out the whole story before them. And they leave that conversation transformed, just like I'm sure some people left this conversation transformed because they were convicted that when they were reading the scriptures, they were just doing it for themselves. And depending on how you're wired, that can mean you're doing it for yourself to build up your brain knowledge. You're doing it to be able to you know, win a theological argument with someone. That's one way that we can read the Bibles and miss Jesus, read our Bibles and miss Jesus. Another way that we can do it and miss Jesus, and I'm guilty of this all the time, is I try to read so I can find something to fix my problems. And there's ways to look at the scriptures. There's very helpful verses to address very specific situations. But if the only reason I'm picking up my Bible is because I'm in hot water and I just want to find a way to get out of the hot water, that's not good. That's not good because then I'm only looking for what I can get out of it. And I'm not looking for Jesus. I'm not looking for the God of the Bible to surprise me. I was totally surprised when I read Matthew 5, and it did what it did to me. I wasn't planning on that. I was quite content in my bitterness. But because Jesus is merciful, he let me see where I was coming up very, very short. And it changed me. Rather than roll up to the scriptures and say, where do I see myself in this? What does this just mean to me? Those are good questions. I want to offer three questions that are harder for us. And these actually don't come from me. They come from one of the other teaching pastors at Bethany. Uh, Jack, the pastor at Bethany Northeast, he carries around a three by five index card in his Bible with these questions on it. And I love it. I want to start doing this myself. These are questions to ask as you take these small steps, as you step into the scriptures. First question, how can I love and praise God on the basis of this text? Whatever I'm reading, how can I just love and praise God, even the hard stuff? Second question, what attribute of God do I see here that I can praise him for? What part of God's character is being raised up by these scriptures that I can praise him for? Maybe it's his justice. Maybe it's his kindness. Maybe it's his mercy. Again, taking the camera lens off of ourselves, putting it firmly on Jesus. And I'll post these questions on our church Facebook page later today. How can I thank Jesus for living and revealing himself as the ultimate revelation of this attribute of God? How can I thank Jesus for living and revealing himself as the ultimate revelation of this attribute of God? Those three questions steer us completely away from just thinking about ourselves and our problems and instead put the focus where it belongs when we look at the scriptures, and that is on Jesus Christ and him resurrected. So we study the Bible, we read the Bible, because we need the truth. We read the Bible because we need the truth. You say it with me one more time. We read the Bible because we need the truth. The author Franz Kafka once wrote that if the book we are reading does not wake us as with a fist hammering on our skull, why do we read it? A book must be like an ice axe to break the frozen sea within us. 
like an ice axe breaking up our frozen sea. That's what happened to me. I'm sure that that's happened to some of the rest of us in the room. And there's a positive version of that as well. It's not just breaking apart our sinfulness, moving us away from stuff that we shouldn't be doing. One of the things that's unique about the calling that my dad has experienced in his law firm with Bob studying the Bible is that they do stuff differently. They run their business differently. They don't just go after clients that have lots of money. They serve a lot of people that have no money whatsoever. And they make sure that those folks can be cared for, that they have the assistance that they need to get through this hard time. They try to treat their employees well, make sure that it's a great place to work. Their employees just love showing up to work. And those aren't uniquely Christian traits, but those are traits formed by people who study the scriptures and say, this is how we're supposed to treat people in our business. Lately, because of something that Jesus said, my dad's doing something really interesting and really different. His law practice is focused in civil law. So he works with people who've been in accidents, who've had stuff happen to him at work, that kind of thing. My dad has started going with a ministry called Kairos into prisons. Kairos Prison Ministry. Maybe you've heard of this. They go into prisons around the world and they pray with prisoners and they take care of them and they do worship with them and they invite them to follow Jesus Christ. And now my dad, because Jesus said, you were with me when I was in prison, you cared for me, because of that passage in this season in his life is doing something he's never done before. And maybe that's a step of faith for us to consider today. What's the thing that Jesus might be asking you to do as you read the scriptures, as you study them, to do something that you've never done before? Maybe it's just picking up a Bible. Like, you know you can get it on your phone, but what if you had an actual Bible? We got a pile of Bibles on the table in the back. If all those Bibles are gone at the end of our worship service today, that's a win. And if it's for you or if you give it to somebody else, just take one, please. Make them available to somebody that you love or make it available for yourself so you can really study it. There's so many good resources out there. There's different Bible apps where you can stream the Bible in audio. There's Pray As You Go, which is a really wonderful app. What's the step of faith that God's inviting you to regarding Bible reading? Maybe when I was talking about praying for your enemies, that was really kicking around, and maybe you need to pay attention to that. And I didn't come up with it. Jesus came up with it. Maybe it's tithing regularly. Maybe it's giving to the mission and ministry of God's church. Maybe you're reading the Bible later this week and you read the passage where it says, let the little children come to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And you say to yourself, I got to help out with children's ministry. I got to get in on what Ken and others are doing. It's awesome. I'd love to be a part of that. That is a huge step of faith. Maybe you're curious about Bible Study Fellowship. I was not paid by Bible Study Fellowship to promote them today, by the way. They're a nonprofit. They don't charge for their classes. If you, I just looked it up online. There are classes all over the east side. For men and women, they have childcare. It's an amazing ministry. And I should mention that BSF played a key role in my journey too. When I first moved to the Seattle area, I joined up with the BSF class and I started going. And I learned something amazing. I learned that good theology always comes from the Bible. Huh. Who knew? I studied Romans. I studied Genesis. It was one of the most diverse experiences I've ever been a part of. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation studying the scriptures together. And because of that experience, I started to think, you know, I really like studying the Bible. I, I wonder if seminary should be a step for me. BSF was critical in my journey towards seminary. And I don't think that's their end goal. But it was the goal that God had for me. And that's why I'm here.
And I would love it if some folks from our church said, I want to learn the Bible just a little bit more. I want my kids to know it. And whether you step toward BSF or something else, that you found a way to hear the word of God and respond to it. So one more time, we read the Bible because we need the truth. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for our time together. And thank you that when we worship you, when we hear your good news and your good voice to us, that we're invited to respond. And I pray now that as we get ready to respond through singing, that you would stir up in each of our hearts a desire to respond through transformation, through taking on something we've never taken on before. Maybe we go home and we read just a few minutes of the scriptures and we just see how good and wonderful it is to see your truth right in front of us. Or maybe we read the Bible with our kids every day, or maybe we take a Bible with us to our office and we read it on our lunch break. Whatever we choose to do, thank you that when we open up the scriptures, we do so in front of you and we invite you to speak to each of us, speak to our hearts, and change us so that whether we are feeling very near to you or very far from you, that the scriptures would draw us deeper into the story that you're writing for us and for our world. We love you, and we ask these things in the name of Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.